We all know that dimension and height in the needle arts creates visual excitement and form. And the Elizabethans were no different, propelling this form of embroidery to a whole new level in their raised or embossed work. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Raised or embossed work is a dimensional embroidery technique developed in England during the early 17th century, incorporating either pre-stitched embroidered pieces, raised stitches or padded areas characterised by high relief, creating dramatic story-like pictures or designs to decorate objects such as storage containers, baskets and mirror frames. Only capturing a relatively short period of popularity, this exuberant technique reached its peak between 1650 to 1690, after which the popularity for raised work began to ebb as a fashionable occupation around 1766, resurging again in the 1800s. New ideas and inspiration from the Orient were beginning to sweep across England and one thing all embroiderers have in common is a love for something new. But it's not until sometime in the 19th century that the word stump work begins to be used to describe raised and embossed work. Although even the word itself is a mystery, thought to reference either the wooden pieces used in traditional stump work or the corruption of the word stamp, as in the commercially stamped stump work patterns offered for sale. The Relic in Situ blog from 2018, Why We Hate the Term Stump Work, delves deeper with research into the first published use of the word stump work coming from a 1904 Burlington magazine specialising in art and art history. An article in this magazine by Mrs Head includes stump work to describe raised embroidery, writing that English stump work has a definite individuality. Lace, brocade, satin, peacock's feathers and human hair were all blended together with the finest and most elaborate embroidery stitches and raised on stumps of wood or wood pads in the most fantastic designs. I have to say I agree with the relic in situ premise in their blog post, preferring the more accurately descriptive descriptive term raised work to represent this beautiful technique. The idea of padding to create dimension was just beginning to be worked into some religious embroidery during the latter period of Opus Anglicanum. So what the Elizabethans appear to have done is to develop and refine the technique to a much higher level of expertise and mastery. 
Really, they changed the game entirely. Raised work was seen as the epitome of a wealthy young girl's embroidery skill and was the level by which their needlework expertise and prowess was measured. First came training in techniques such as canvas work, beading and white work, maybe even on band samplers, allowing them to hone and refine their embroidery skills before starting out on raised work, some of which could take them years to complete. It would have only been the daughters of the gentry who could afford both the time and the materials for this style of embroidery, enabling them to advance to the more elaborate stitches used to create this unique stylistic form of needle art. The designs for raised work could be impressively realistic and intricate with the most common themes inspired by allegorical and biblical subjects along with figures and portraits of monarchs. Storage boxes or caskets were also made to house precious collections, writing materials, jewellery, letters or other personal items and were often covered with this sumptuous dimensional form of embroidery, providing the perfect way to showcase the embroiderer's expertise and flair with a needle and thread. The Metropolitan Museum's website has some amazing images and information on raised work embroidery, housing a number of cabinets or small boxes, one embroidered with the personification of the five senses made in the third quarter of the 17th century. This passage comes directly from the Met Museum's website. This box is typical of raised work pieces in that it employs a variety of stitches and includes the use of metal thread and other materials, in addition to coloured silks. The faces of the five women representing the senses are drawn in ink on satin and the figure of sight holds a mirror made of mica that reflects her face. Other unexpected materials were frequently used to highlight details, real hair for a figure's head, tiny seed pearls for a necklace and glass beads for animal eyes. This delightful small box stands on four rounded feet, with each edge finished with what looks like a line of thin silver braid. Animals and flowers abound with trees, vistas of buildings and seated and standing figures. Spiders, snails, rabbits and a turtle all frolic under a sun-studded sky topped by a few wispy clouds. Worked on satin using silk and metal thread, pearl, chenille, seed pearls, coral beads and mica, along with tent, knots, rococo, satin, couching and detached buttonhole stitches. It's beautifully stitched, but it's the intricacy and level of detail that's breathtaking and the colours are still so rich and clear. And for something totally different, yet nonetheless just as exuberant from the same period, the Met Museum also holds an example of a raised work mirror frame. And as often happens, this style of high relief embroidery coincided with improvements in English domestic 
glass production, resulting in some magnificent examples of 17th century embroidered household furnishings. This description also comes directly from the Met Museum's website. The decoration of this mirror refers to a marital union, symbolised by the couple flanking the mirror glass, the two manor houses above them and the figure of harmony in the guise of a young woman playing a lute at the top of the mirror. The heraldic lion and leopard suggest that the owner was a loyal royalist as these animals appear on the royal coat of arms as well. Again worked in the third quarter of the 17th century, this British mirror frame is worked on satin with silk and chenille threads, pearl, shells, wood, beads, mica, bird feathers, bone or coral, detached buttonhole variations, long and short stitch, satin stitch and couching. It measures just over 23 inches high by 19 inches wide. Scalloped outside edges contrast with the rigid rectangular mirror glass in the centre and again the embroidery, dimensionality and colours are exquisite. And at this time it was apparently quite fashionable to place male and female figures on either side of a frame, seductively separated by that hard mirror glass. And something that should be noted here, apart from the embroidery and materials, are the stories these works in part. The five senses and a marital union. I don't know about you, but these topics set my mind off in different directions for design ideas using a stitched narrative. Techniques used to produce raised work could include silk work, gold work, counted work, flat and raised embroidery beadwork, padding and needle lace, ranging from the simple line stitches to the more complex filling and lace stitches. Practically any ground fabric is uh, suitable for stump work, with threads including wool, cotton and silk, but also embracing some rather unusual ones too, such as human hair. And one method for creating this wonderful dimension was the making of slips, a technique which has been around for centuries, enabling the manufacture of small embroidered and reusable elements. The beauty of this also meant that these elements could be moved from one object to another when the background fabric began to wear. In many ways, this could be looked at as an early form of embroidery recycling. Basically, embroidered slips are small pieces of either fully or partially stitched embroidery, sewn onto one fabric, then applied onto another. Because they can also be padded or stuffed to create dimension, they have been widely used throughout raised work embroidery. And there appears to be three different methods for creating embroidered slips. One is to embroider the motive onto a ground fabric, then cut out leaving a quarter inch seam allowance, appliquing this onto the new design as required. Further dimension can be added to this motive prior to the slip being entirely attached by leaving a small opening on a fairly straight area of the motive, anchoring stitches either side of the opening for stability, then filling with your chosen fill 
before closing. Stitches for petals or leaves could also be worked around pieces of wire to create individual forms. The shaped wire enables the form to maintain its shape while also allowing the embroiderer to gently roll over parts of the finished leaves or petals for added effect. A length of wire is laid a, uh, around a drawn shape on one piece of fabric, leaving two tails to be dealt with later. The wire is couched, then buttonholed, and the motive embroidered. The motive is cut away, leaving a small margin of fabric, which is then trimmed as closely as possible to the work. The wire tails are taken to the back of the work and neatly finished. Padded shapes of increasingly smaller sizes of felt were also used to create dimension. These were covered with a layer of embroidery. Another way to create a padded base underneath the motive was to use one or more layers of embroidery, usually satin stitch, worked in alternate directions within the shape and then embroidered over the top. On occasion, small carved pieces of wood were used beneath stitching or wooden or glass beads were covered with stitch. All these techniques, ranging from the simple to the more complex, were used to achieve the same thing. Dimension. And let's not forget, there are various stitches that create their own 3D effect, able to be used in raised work, including knotted, woven, detached and couch stitches, raised fishbone, raised buttonhole or velvet stitch, along with raised stem band. Embroidered slips were captured in a painting attributed to Robert Peake the Elder, 1551-1619, to in the so-called procession portrait of Elizabeth I, circa 1600-03, worked in oil on canvas. Preceded by her Knights of the Garter, Elizabeth is conveyed by other knights, all exquisitely outfitted, while on her way to the wedding of Anne Russell in 1600. She's carried in majesty on a covered chair, the canopy of which is decorated with embroidered slips. It's a magnificent painting capturing Elizabeth surrounded by her courtiers. A late 16th century cushion cover also employed the same technique of embroidered slips attached to velvet, which may have been either worked or at least commissioned by Bess of Hardwick. Gone now were the symmetrical precise designs of the embroidered samplers, which had been so popular, in favour of compositions liked or admired by the embroiderer, incorporating plants, animals, elaborately dressed figures and even buildings such as castles or tents. And much the same as the earlier blackwork embroidery, scale was not the object here either. Fruits could be larger than a person, a bug larger than a bird, but the designs were colourful and highly spirited, adorning personal items such as gloves, mirror frames or household items such as uh, cushion covers and wall hangings.
Now, we know from past episodes that it was essential for women, especially to be able to stitch garments and also understand some basic embroidery techniques. But some men were able to sew, with young girls being taught to stitch from an early age. These skills would have been applied to clothing or household items for their families, but it's in the wealthy households where time and money were plentiful, where the technique of raised work embroidery flourished. Stump work remains a popular technique in the 21st century, due in part to its ability for embroiderers to express themselves in their work. I'm so grateful you're here with me listening to this amazing history, so thank you for your time. Stitch Safari's now reached over 3,500 downloads, and that's all thanks to you, the listener. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to learn and discover, and it's fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, uh, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website, so do head on over. Until the next episode of Stitch Safari, bye for now.